Hi, my name is Brian, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 4, 3-8, and 16-17. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin will be waiting at the door, ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. When they were in the field, uh, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain left the Lord's presence, and he settled down in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain built a city and named the city after his son Enoch. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Andy. Uh, the New Testament reading is found in 1 John three eleven through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mike. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John fifteen eighteen through 20 and sixteen thirty one through 33. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you do not belong to the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my word, they will obey yours too. Jesus replied, do you believe or do you now believe? Look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and I will be left alone. Yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, we're in the middle of a series based on the letter of 1 John. It's toward the end of your Bible, one of the smaller, shorter books. And by Christian tradition, it's written by the same John who wrote the gospel according to John. And we've called the series Beloved because this is one of the ways John describes himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, and, but it's also a, a phrase or a word that he uses to describe us as believers. And so he says over and over again to his, his 
congregations, uh, beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, he keeps using this word to call us and to name us. And so we've, we've, we've titled our series this because as we move through this letter, the goal is really to begin to hear this word as something true about us. Uh, it's to begin to see that you and I, this is who we are in Christ. And so when we began the series, we opened up in chapter one. John finishes his prologue, his intro. And then he says, okay, here's the message that we've heard from the beginning. God is light. Now, when you first hear, hear that, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When you first hear that, it might sound a little bit um, fearful. You might feel a little fearful because light might be an exposing light or a searching light. But John has this picture of Jesus, the light of the world, as the one who says, I'm here to save. And we get this picture of the woman caught in the act of adultery in John's gospel where the religious leaders want to shine an exposing light on her sin. And Jesus, the light of the world, says, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. This light is not a shaming light, but a saving light. The Lord is our light and our salvation. We talked about that. And then we moved on into chapter 2 to say, okay, but, but now what? Now that we've come into the light, now that this light has cleansed us and set us in fellowship, okay, great, but, but now what? Do I actually need to begin to live differently? And so in week 2 of this series, we said, yeah, John wants us to know that the commandments that God gives us are meant to give us life. They're not random rules. They're not just sort of outdated ethical commands. No, these are the the, the things that are meant to lead us to flourishing. And so John says, look, there there is a commandment. There are these commandments, but they're given to us. And John kind of boils it down to two things that are really like two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, he's going to say, love one another. On the other hand, he's also going to say, and do not love the world. And so in week three of the series, we said, what, what is John up to when he says, do not love the world? Is he talking about birds and trees and mountains and streams? And no, no, no. He's talking about the, the, the cravings that we have, the passions that lead us to set our hearts on the things of this world, the systems and the structures that represent a life without God or a life apart from God. And really why John is saying do not love the world, why that's his prohibitive commandment, it's not because John's fussy and a cranky old guy who's saying stop loving the world. No, John's saying look, it's this tender older man saying don't do this because you're, gonna choo- you're choosing the lesser thing. You're choosing the lesser joy. You're choosing the lesser love. It is the love of the Father that is the fountain of life. And then last week we began our pivot away from this negative command of do not love the world toward loving one another. And last week we said, okay, but hang on. There's one question I have. It's, it's who, who am I? Who are we in the midst of this struggle? Am I a saint or am I a sinner in the midst of the up and down of this? Because, yeah, okay, great. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm turning away from this and I'm turning toward this, but there's all this up and down. So am I a saint or am I a sinner? And so last week we said, look, John wants us to know that who you are right now is children of God. That's who you actually are. And one day when he appears, you'll see him and you'll be like him. So get this, John takes our identity and our hope 
and sets us in between that and says, look, a sure identity and a sure hope. And in between that, you can learn to stop practicing sin and start practicing righteousness. But you know what? In the ups and downs of it, in the failures of it, in the mistakes of it, your identity is still secure. And so is your hope. It's like dropping a pass in a preseason game. It's like, it's okay. You're going to be fine. We're all right. There's room to, to, to practice this, okay? And in fact, John's language is so strong. I didn't say this last week, but when he says God's seed abides in you, that word is sperma. That's why one translation says God's DNA is actually in you. When he's made you his child, it means he's made you something different than you were. Something has changed about you. Now today we begin our turn toward this great command of John to love one another. And so as we begin to enter that, that whole territory and say, okay, great, what does this look like? We want to ask ourselves the question, not who are we, but where are we? Not simply about who we are, but now about where we are. And John talks about us having moved from one time zone to the next. Any of you ever travel internationally? You know, and, and maybe if you travel, you know, several time zones over, you're all just messed up. You remember the first afternoon or the first evening in a new time zone, you know, like international time zone, we're seven, eight, nine, maybe 12 hours ahead, 14 hours ahead, if you're really getting far into the, on the other side of the world. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, I just, my body just feels all out of whack. Like it's midnight, but I want to eat bacon. <laughs> I'm thinking bacon and eggs. And they're like, isn't it a bit late for that? <laughs> You're like, but I, my body says I'm, it's morning or whatever. You know? So John, the Jews of, of the early centuries, or really even before the time of Christ, they were, their hope was that God would one day act and end this age and begin the new one. See, when they began to find themselves still living under someone else's rule, you know, they'd come back from Babylonian exile, but then they still had Rome kind of oppressing them. And so they were, le- they were left with really one of two choices. Either they believe God's not faithful and God will not keep his word, or God will keep his word, but it's going to come in the age to come, in a new day, not this day. And what Jesus and all of the first Christians began to say is actually what Jesus has done is he started to close one day, one age, while a new one has begun. And so all of us are really living in between time zones. We are people who've been made to belong to an age that is arriving, but we're living in this present one. We're like jet lag travelers. We're like people who know, hey, I belong to this time zone, but everybody around me wants to go to bed, and I want bacon. <laughs> John says this is what it means to, be, to have moved from death to life. And so that's our title this morning, From Death to Life, Moving from Death to Life. Let's stop for a moment before we open the text. What would it be like Could you imagine for a moment what your life would be like if you didn't fear death? I know there's many fears and maybe at the root there's a base fear of rejection or of not being loved. But if we're honest, there's also this other kind of root fear, which is a fear of dying. And so maybe even on the good days for you, 
The days where everything should be happy and everything should be fun, there's a dark cloud that kind of looms overhead and says, watch it, it's all going to end someday. This is all, it's going to be over one day. I'm not talking about experiencing a little bit of fear. You know, we all go through life, but fear is part of the frailty of our humanity. I'm talking about being gripped by the fear of death. I'm talking about something that deep in your core leads you to act. I mean, could you imagine if you were actually able to wake up in the morning and say, I, death? Honestly, I mean, it kind of scares me, but I'm, there's not like a gut-level fear about this. I mean, could you imagine what that would really look like? John says we've moved from death to life. What on earth does he mean? First John chapter 3, verse 11. Turn there with me. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, just a side note, there's lots that's, that's maybe a mystery when you hear the Cain and Abel story, and there, there's very little details we're told in the actual Genesis account, and you heard it in the Old Testament reading this morning. And so, you know, it, it may sound to you like, oh, man, this God is like this capricious deity that why did he... Why did he love this gift and not that one. Well, the writer John here is giving us a little hint that, that, that perhaps a tradition developed over time that there was more to this story than, than we um, might get just from reading Genesis. That maybe there's something here that Cain had done with his offering that, that was not accepted. And then he goes on and he says, um, Don't be, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now don't hear these words as like, uh, if you're doing this, therefore you're going to. Hear it the reverse way. John is saying, look, you've moved from death to life and you know that because you've begun to truly love. And actually, there's this whole other way of living that looks like not loving. And so perhaps this morning, it's helpful for us to think about two worlds, two countries, if you will, two very distinct time zones. The first is the world that Cain built. The world that Cain built. The world that Cain built is a world predicated by fear. It's a world that says somebody else is going to do better than me. It's a world that says, if I don't, then I won't have this or have that or have what I need. It's a world that says, I've got to find the weakest link before I am discovered as the weakest link. Philosopher Rene Girard calls this kind of living the scapegoat paradigm. The scapegoat where you look for someone else who's weak. This is why kids bully one another on the playground because it, it basically is a way of saying if we can bully that kid, then we have signaled to the pack that that one is the weakest one and that assures me of not being the picked on one. Right? So you find the scapegoat. We do this all the time. If someone else's sin can be a bigger, badder, worser, <laughs> more terribler sin than my sin then I can make all of this big deal in culture wars about this issue and then maybe no one will pay attention to the wickedness in my own heart. Maybe no one will notice my own sin. 
And so we scapegoat. This is the world of Cain to find someone else who must be worse than you, who somehow poses a threat to you, and then fear leads to violence. You eliminate them. (laughs) Well, that's a bit strong, Glenn. Sure. Preemptive violence to eliminate the threat of your own extinction. Well, that's not something we deal with, is it? It's not anything us modern Westerners can relate to. The world of Cain says, I live with fear, and therefore I've got to take matters in my own hands, and even if it means doing violence to another person physically or or, or relationally, that's okay because better them than me. That's the world that Cain built. Cain, Genesis tells us, is the, the founder of the first city. And so in some ways, Cain is the father of, of civilization in one sense. And doesn't all of civilization kind of work like this? Find the weak, get them before they get you, preserve yourself by doing so. You see it, of course, even in the animal kingdom. You know, we've been watching with our kids a little bit, little of the clips of planet Earth. And, you know, you see the predator on the prowl and the pack of, of weaker prey that kind of stick together and they try to stick together to protect one another, to help one another. But in the end, there's always one straggler and the straggler gets caught and eaten. And then you realize, aha, you don't have to be fastest, just don't be the slowest. <laughs> right? And we learn these things. You don't have to be the best, just don't be the worst. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy, right? We say this. But this is different than the world that Jesus is making. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's John talking about? Jesus. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you're like, yes, yes, I want to. I don't want to live with a closed heart. I don't want to love with a closed heart that's kind of just, yeah, I'll just love just a little tiny bit. I'll just let love kind of eke out. But really, I'm holding things very closely. No, John's saying, no, love is... In, in, in deed and in truth, let it just come out of you. Be open-handed with your love. But how is this possible? You can't do this when you're living in the world that Cain built. And so we need to set in contrast with that the world that Jesus is making. The world that Jesus is making is a new kind of reality, a new kind of world that says, no, no, you don't start with the premise that you're afraid and threatened, you start with the premise that you are the beloved child of God. You think about how Jesus' ministry began with the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this carries Jesus all through his ministry so he can touch the leper, he can heal the sick, he can show up at appointments that he didn't really have, and he can go, he can say things that were so outrageous and risky that in the end they killed him. And if the story had ended there, then all of us can say, you see, Glenn, this kind of life doesn't work. It's just fancy hippie talk. Nice flowers and whatever. I mean, sure, sure, sure. Lay your life down. Cain took a life. Jesus laid down his life. You're saying we should live that way. Yeah, well, Glenn, guess what? We live in the real world and it doesn't work. And on Friday... 
all of the disciples of Jesus thought it didn't work either. And on Saturday, they thought, this was nuts. Turn the other cheek, loving your enemies. Look where it got us. And then on Sunday, the father who was faithful to his word raised the son up from the grave and announced to the world, this kind of life wins. This kind of life wins. Not the kind of life that functions on fear and self-preservation and violence, but the life that says, yes, I love with no restraint. I love with no fear because even death cannot win. John is trying to say, look, we've moved from death to life. We've moved from the world of Cain to the world of Jesus. We don't have to do or live in the way of hatred or violence. We, We can live in the land of life. Because we know that God vindicates this kind of life in the end. The John who receives the revelation in the book of Revelation, whether or not it is the same God, we're not really sure. But this revelation shows us that the martyrs will be vindicated. That all the ones who lived and loved this way in the end are the true victors. Not the empire, Not the beast, but the lamb. Not Babylon and its empire, but the city of God and its love. Not the Caesars or the tyrants, but the martyrs and the saints. These are the ones who win. That's the message of the scriptures to us. You say, well, Glenn, I mean, that's... That's cute. I mean, I I want to believe that, but but how... Maybe it's worth looking for a moment at what it looks like to love death and to live in the country of death. Several years ago, Mullah Omar, a Taliban leader, told a Western journalist, he said, your young people love life, but our young people love death. In 2004, after a bombing of a commuter train in Madrid, same thoughts were echoed by the terrorist organization that claimed responsibility for it. They said, you love life, We love death. This is not very different from the SS German soldiers in World War II whose slogan was, give death, accept death. Death, death, death. Now the secularized version of this then is to say, okay, okay, so, so, we just need to love life. Right? I mean, maybe, maybe this, this Taliban leader was right. That we, all we have to do, the difference really is just, just, just that we love life. But that's not quite right, is it? Because if, you, if all the, that is different is that we love life, that doesn't really eliminate the fear of death. In fact, one might suggest that makes it worse. Because you love life so much, you're afraid to lose it. The gospel is not that we simply love life. The gospel is that life conquers death. And so the early Christians lived with no fear of death because they believed that when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was a promise that for all who belong to Jesus, one day what, we get to go to heaven? No. Listen, can I say this? I like the hope of heaven. I think heaven's wonderful, but that was not the hope of the early Christians. You know what the hope of the early Christians was? It was bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 The ending words of the Nicene Creed, we look 
for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Not we look for the rapture or the one day when I'll fly away to heaven. Sorry. Just preaching now. Because an escape from a bully is not victory. If death really is this bully that's trying to make us live in fear, then it's no victory when your dad comes and says, hop in the car, let's get out of here. That's not winning. Winning is when your dad arrives and says, bully, you step over here. Your time is over. And the Bible speaks of Christian hope as the day when Jesus appears And his reign comes to bear in fullness in such a way that the world is made new and death is destroyed. For the last enemy to be destroyed, Paul says, is death. And the early Christians believed that. They said, death, you are not going to bully us anymore because we belong to the king who reigns over death. Take that. And all the tyrants of Rome said, why is it these Christians don't fear the threat of death? How can they be so peaceful at the stake or in the arena, at the, you know, tied up at the stake or, or, or in the arena with wild beasts? Why are they so, why? I mean, read the stories. Perpetua, the diary of a woman named Perpetua, pregnant, kept in this place, sent to the arena with wild beasts, totally serene. Why? What did they know that we've forgotten? They knew that we don't belong to death. We belong to life. In the early centuries, there was a, <laughs> there was a disease that was running rampant in the cities. Infection was spreading so quickly. Fear, panic. This is the third century. Some estimates were that 5,000 people a day in Rome were dying. Another sociologist estimated that in Alexandria in Egypt, two-thirds of the population had been wiped out by this disease. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in the third century, wrote about the the disease a bit descriptively. Intense vomiting, infection in the blood. He said some other things too. Panic. Disease. Virus, epidemic. And there was a doctor in Rome, a famous doctor named Galen, who when the disease, when the epidemic was spreading through Rome, Galen fled the city and went to the countryside. Got to get away, y'all. Got to take care of myself. That's the world of Cain. And the early Christians They stayed. The early Christians stayed in these cities and began to care for the sick. In fact, our best guess, modern scientific guess at what this epidemic was, smallpox. And as it turns out, with enough care and food and water, it's very possible to survive smallpox. And a funny thing happens when you survive smallpox, you become immune. And so these early Christians began to care for one another in the third century. Christians began to survive at a higher survival rate than pagans because the bodies of pagans, one of the stories tells us, were strewn on top of each other like they were trying to get to the fountain in the courtyard of the center of the city and they couldn't quite get there and they just died there, just stacked on top of each other. But the Christians, they set up tents and began to care for one another. And then when they recovered, they began, they say, hey, you know what, let's go care for the pagans. 
Let's go love them. They began to care for them. And these pagans are looking at these Christians walking among the sick and not getting sick. And they're like, it's a miracle. Kind of. But the miracle isn't that they didn't get sick. The miracle is that they loved with such a radical love that they didn't even fear death. It's amazing. There's a sociologist named Rodney Stark. I think he's based at Baylor. Several years ago, he was researching the rise of Christianity, and in his research, in the process of his research, he became a believer. Isn't that amazing? And he's the one who writes about it in his book, The Rise of Christianity. He says, it's very possible. What is it that made Christianity go from this marginalized religion to all of a sudden in the late fourth century to be so spread throughout the empire that when the emperor says, let's make this the official religion, it wasn't this <gasps> gasp, but it was a, yeah, why? How did it go from minority to this thing that had infiltrated everywhere. Stark says it's very possible that the way Christians responded during these epidemics played a huge role in that. Because now not only did you have higher survival rates, but you had a higher ratio of Christians to non-Christians within social networks. Now I mean fourth century, third century social networks, like friend groups. So where else before it might have been 1 to 16, and so your likelihood of being in overlapping social networks with a Christian was very slim. It all of a sudden jumped to 1 in 4 or 1 in 6 or something like that. And now people were in close proximity with these Christians who did not fear death. You know Galen, that Roman doctor I told you about, he actually wrote, these Christians are so convinced about (laughs) the life hereafter they, they just live. You see it in them every day, he said. It's amazing. Just fearless. In 2003, fast forward just a few years, there was the SARS epidemic in Hong Kong and in China. And you, some of you may recall this. And several expats were fleeing out of Hong Kong and China and understandably trying to get out of there. And there was a doctor, part of New Life, Dr. Larry G at the time, and he was ministering there. And he decided, we can't leave. This is the time when they need us. And so he mobilized thousands of volunteers, 2,000 volunteers from over 60 nations. And they stayed and began to assemble care packages for the hospital workers, for the students, for all those who couldn't flee. They gave out, in those days, 15,000 different care packages. They got a write-up in the paper about them and all the stuff. And everybody's scratching their heads. Who are these people When others flee for their life, these lay down their life. Who are these people? What is it about even now in the Ebola crisis in Africa that it is missionary doctors who go, who remain, Christians and churches in Liberia who care and work? What is it about that? See, our media doesn't get it. They're, they try to you know, throw stones at, at Dr. Brantley or others and say, oh, it's, it's, it's foolhardy, it's this and that. And, and you know what? It's no surprise that they don't understand it because we are people of the resurrection. We are people who believe that death will be swallowed up by life. We are people who believe we don't live in the time zone of death anymore. We live in the future. So it may be midnight all around the world, but doggone it, we're going to have some bacon. <laughs> this breakfast, it's, the, it's dawn, it's morning for us. 
C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be, make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Not a little itty bitty puppy. Because in 12 years, you know that dog's going to die. <laughs> give or take. Now, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Lewis is saying, yeah, sure, busy yourself with little trinkets and just stuff that doesn't matter. Go ahead, live that life if you're so afraid of being vulnerable. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable for to love is to be vulnerable so I, 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 you know, I don't know I just haven't connected in church I don't know about a meal group and I don't know about joining this or that because I just you know I just don't know if I'm ready to you know and I get that but to love it all <laughs> is to risk now later in John's letter, he's going to deal with that risk of rejection, that fear of rejection and punishment. That's coming in chapter 4. Right now he wants to deal with that fear of death that keeps us from loving fully. Jürgen Moltmann, the great German theologian, wrote this, true life means here love and there glory. The resurrection hope liberates love, liberates our love from the fear of death and the fear of losing its own self. Now listen to this last sentence. The resurrection hope makes people ready to live their lives in love wholly and to say a full and entire yes to a life that leads to death. I mean, think about that. It's the resurrection hope that enables us to say a full yes Love, even love in this life, even this life that will eventually end in death. Why? Because we believe in resurrection. We believe something's coming beyond death, beyond this, beyond it. See, life in its fullness then will be called glory. We don't know fully what that's like. We can't sketch out exactly what that resurrection life is. It's going to be called glory. But you know what? If you want to know life in its fullness now, love. If you want to know life in its fullness now, love. Not in the generic sloganeering Oprah sort of way, but in the Christian self-sacrificial, self-giving, laying down your life kind of love. The Jesus-shaped love. You want to know life in its fullness? It's not preservation. It's not guard yourself. Don't give too much. Don't care too much. Don't love too much. Don't serve too much. Just keep it right here, baby, and then you'll have it all for retirement. Nothing evil. Unless you know in your heart you've got it all kept in. You want life in its fullness? Love the way Jesus loved. When you love fully, you have life fully. That's another way to say it. And when you have life fully, you will love fully. Church, as we prepare to come to the table this morning, this is the place where we see the death of Christ. It's also the place where we remember the resurrection of Christ. 
One of the liturgical words that different parts of the church say around communion, they say, dying he destroyed our death, and rising he restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Jesus, in a sense, became the ultimate scapegoat. Put it all on me, he said. Put it all on me. Your fear, the rejection, the sin, the shame, the wickedness, put it all on me. I'll take it. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be like Cain where you're murdering me. No, no, I'll lay my life down. Jesus said it. No one takes my life. I lay it down. I'll take it. And the result of my taking it is that in dying, I destroy your death. And the Father raised him up, and the result of the Father raising Jesus from the dead is that rising, he restored your life. Lord Jesus, come in glory.